Welcome to another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church. First of all, what is ethics? Why are we even talking about it? Um, ethics really is about, and particularly Christian ethics, is about what we ought to do. How, sh- how ought we to live our life as a Christian in light of all the things that surround us and in light of our own spiritual development and our relationship with God? How ought we to live in the world? So really ethics is a very important subject and it's something that we need to get a hold of because it involves our decision-making on a daily basis. Everything that we do involves ethical decisions. And so we need to get a hold of it and a grasp of it. So, so it's an important subject. But general ethics, teleological or utilitarian ethics, is goal-oriented. And you've probably heard the greatest good for the greatest number of people. That is, that is what this kind of ethic is looking towards. Let's try and figure out uh, to, to please as many people as we possibly can and to minimise the bad stuff. And, and that's not a bad thing to do. Um, so what it is, it looks at the end, the telos, the goal, and sees, well, if that's good, then it doesn't really matter too much about how we get there so long as the outcome's a good thing. Now, that sounds okay, but the problem is, is that a lot of horrific injustice can be done, particularly against minorities, and minority groups in the name of a utilitarian ethic. And so we find that uh, there are some problems with that particular way of thinking. Next, we had a look at deontological ethics. Deon just means duty in Greek, and or absolutism. So we're looking at rules, rules for life, taking a rule and applying that uncritically across the board to everybody and all things in all places in all times. It's a rule-based, uh, uh, it's a rule-based ethic. And the problem that we have with that, as we saw two weeks ago, is that what happens when you get two absolutes that conflict with one another in a given situation? And so we found that it wasn't the best way of, or it was, let's just say it's problematic, okay, at the best of times. And, and it leads to legalism. You know, we end up becoming rule-based people and forget that people actually, you know, have feelings and things like that. So, uh, so we become very legalistic and very judgmental in the way that we approach people and judge how they live their lives. So, again, it has its own problems. So from then, we moved on to uh, a solution, which uh, was situational ethics, which kind of blends the best parts of those two and <clears throat> spits out a few of the germs at the same time. All right, uh, and uh, it, so situational ethics is based around the law of love, and it was the law of love that Jesus spoke about uh, when he said that we are to love God and we're to love people or our neighbours as ourselves. And so this this ethic is all about love, but it's based not upon rules and regulations, and it's not based upon an ultimate outcome necessarily, but it is based upon your motive of what we do. So this ethic recognises the uh, unique situations that people are placed into. And that's really important when we're making judgments about situations. Is Every situation is different. There are no two situations the same. So when we make rules about what we should do and how we should act, unless we've got a huge, huge rule book which covers every possible situation, we can't possibly apply rules so we look at the situation. And you can't take 
rules and, and just take rules out of scripture and things like that and just apply them in a vacuum because people's lives are very complicated. And so we can't just take things out of a vacuum because, you know, the reality is that the Bible is by and large silent on a lot of ethical issues that we face. It actually doesn't talk about those things. Paul addressed lots of ethical situations in, uh, in his letters and his correspondence with the New Testament churches, but he certainly didn't address all of them. So we can't just take those ones and just say that's all there is. And then there are other ethical passages in Scripture that we find that actually don't apply to us anymore. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never had to face the problem of um, how I'm to deal with my slave master. So those kind of, those kind of ethics, I, I don't, they don't apply to me anymore. There are things which applied in a certain time, but they, they don't apply to me right here, right now. And so... So we, we're left with a question, how do we do that? How do we use the scriptures, how do we use the word of God to inform how we ought to live? And that's what we're going to have a look at. It recognises this ethic of love, recognises that consequences need to be considered. When we're thinking about the kind of choices that we make about our lives and about how we ought to live, we need to consider the consequences. This kind of love ethic places an emphasis on the means. It places an emphasis on the fact that I actually, as a person making choices, need to have a motive of love when I make those choices. And in fact, it, it emphasizes the fact that motive of love is just as important as the end means. The way we go about doing something is just as important as the end goal in itself. So we try to do the loving thing in this kind of ethic. The other good thing about this particular ethic, because it is situational and looks at the context and, and, and what's happening around and, and where people are at, is that it tends to avoid the conflicting absolutes that we end up with rules. And so we actually can end up at, at some kind of answer. So it, it neatly moves around some of those other issues that, that we might have. So, that's a summary, really, of, of where we came to at the end of the talk three weeks ago, two weeks ago. So, can a Christian ethic really be defined by the law of love alone? Can, it, can, can we reduce ethics? Can we reduce decision-making? Can we reduce the kind of issues that we face today simply by applying a question, how do I love my neighbour? And I would suggest that although this ethic of love is a great ethic and is certainly a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to putting together a Christian ethic, I would argue that it is limited in its application. And so we need to be able to do more than just ask a simple question. So we're going to go to uh, the limitations of a situation ethic are that they're subjective, very, very subjective, and they're relative. Let's give you an example. There's two people up there on the screen. There's Don and there's Donna. Nobody who actually lives anywhere in Harvey Bay is, is are we going to talk about this at all. Okay, so these are a fictional couple here. There we've got Don and Donna. And these two couple, they met at church. They met at a church that was putting on a, uh, a divorce uh, recovery program. 
Okay, so they went along to this course, and as they were going through the course, they were sharing their stories of, of each other's lives to the group. And uh, both of them are an older couple. They've had children. Their children are, are reasonably older now. And uh, both of them have been through a messy divorce, and it was quite difficult for both of them. And in the sharing of their stories within this group, they began to form a bond with one another begin to form a friendship and, in fact, an affection begins to form and they start to date and they see each other outside of this particular group. And, of course, love begins to blossom as it does in these great stories and they fall in love with one another and they even start to talk about getting married. Now, because both of them have been married before, both of them have been fully sexually active in their marriage life to their previous partners and now of course they facing this situation where they have this love and this bond towards one another and they have similarities in their stories and stuff and and they feel drawn towards one another they want to actually start to have intimate relationships with one another the ethical problem is that both of them were brought up in churches which take a dim view of premarital sex so now they've got an ethical dilemma. What are we going to do about this? And we apply the situational ethic, the law of love. Well, surely, surely something that feels so good couldn't possibly be so wrong. I can't remember how many times I've heard that. All right? They feel drawn to one another and they love one another. And, and really, when you think about it, that, that abstaining from premarital sex, that's for adolescents anyway, isn't it? That's for single people. All right? Not us, because we've been married. We know what it's all about. Subjectivity, when we look at the law of love, can... can really mean anything you want and can be made to mean anything that you want unless we have some way of grounding what love means. Some way of grounding what this love ethic actually looks like because at the end of the day, love means different things to different people, doesn't it? You see, as Christians, we grow up in the church. We intuitively understand the love of God and the love of neighbour. Because we've heard the stories of the prodigal son. We've heard the stories of the good Samaritan. These stories and the life of Jesus and the things that Jesus talked about and discussed about, these have all been part of our spiritual formation since Sunday school. So when we hear about the law of love, love your neighbor as yourself, it resonates with us and we intuitively are drawn to it. But what about people who come from different backgrounds than us? What about people who haven't been to church all their lives? What about those who never went to Sunday school, who come from unchurched backgrounds, possibly even being converted from other religions? Is their idea of love the same as yours and my idea of love? I remember I went to Morocco many moons ago when I had long hair, really long hair. <laughs> So, uh, and it wasn't great. Um, so it was a long time ago I went to, to Morocco and I was speaking to one of our Arabic um, tour guides who was taking us around uh, the city of Tangiers and I started to witness to this guy and I was telling him about the love of God and how God loves us and how we love him. And he, he had this strange look on his face, really strange look. And I never quite understood 
why he had this weird look on his face. But anyway, he did. And, and so the conversation finished and we went away. It wasn't until maybe a couple of years later that I found out that his idea of love was a sexual love. So when I was talking to him about the fact that God loves me and that I love God, What about the idea of love? Is love the same for a 19-year-old as it is for a 90-year-old? Ma chérie, your wrinkles are looking lovely in the moonlight tonight. I dare say love changes with the seasons and changes with your age. So how do, we, how do we ground love? Because if we just use this word love, it's going to mean a whole lot of things to different people. And so we need to really define what love means. We need to define what it means for, for us as Christians and what Jesus meant. In fact, this is really where, where it, it really becomes important. Is we have to understand what did Jesus intend when he said, love your neighbor? What was the thoughts behind that? What did the original hearers of Jesus' command hear? What did they understand? What did it mean to them? Not what it means to us, because we've got a really different idea of what love means to what Jesus was talking about. So we need to understand what did it mean to them? You know, we, uh, NADOC, we, this week, the theme is our languages. Language is really really important because a language encodes the values of a culture in what it says and how it communicates. So the things that become very important to a culture become encoded in their language, which is why language is very important. So you'll find that if you're an Inuit living in the far north, you've got 50 plus words for snow. Whereas we only have one. And half of you haven't even seen that yet. <laughs> so why? Because it's important for them. Because for them it's life and death. They need to know whether this snow is safe to walk on or whether that snow isn't safe to walk on. It's life and death for them. And so their language encodes what they need to say. And it's the same thing in the New Testament. In Matthew 23... Sorry, 22 and verse 37 to 40. Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. It is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. This double commandment is taken from Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and Leviticus 19, 18 and brought together. The verb to love in the Hebrew is ahav, ahav. And it is not an emotional love. As I've said, words are important to cultures. And for the Hebrew people, covenant was important because covenant for them meant life or death. If we obey the covenant, we live. If we disobey the covenant, we die. It was life and death to them. So this word ahav is actually a covenantal term 
and it has no idea whatsoever that there's any kind of emotion attached to it. It means the love of the Lord. To love God, to have a heart for God, means to be utterly loyal and obedient to him in every respect. Because that should be their response to the law, to the covenant that God had with Israel. So that's what love means in this context here. It's not an emotional thing. Not an emotional thing at all. A halve is an action. It is not a feeling. Jesus reinterprets this for us in the New Testament. In John 14 and verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Exactly what the Old Testament scriptures said. If you love me. So, how do I understand Jesus' love that I'm to have for him? There is a dimension of biblical love which is duty-based. That I have a duty to do it. It's not that I feel it. It's not that I get the woman fuzzies. But I just have a responsibility to do that. So, the New Testament, Jesus would say that when I am loving Jesus when I am obeying him. That's when I'm loving him, especially when I don't feel like it or if I don't understand why. Because it's not based on feelings. It's got nothing to do with that. It's about an action, being obedient. That is love. C.S. Lewis said that the New Testament writers had four words to choose from when they were describing love. Remember that Jesus didn't speak Greek. And if he did, it certainly wasn't his first language. So when the, the New Testament scriptures are written in Greek, they were trying to find words. They were trying to find the words that Greek speakers spoke, which had the same kind of meaning as the Aramaic that Jesus spoke. And so they were drawing on these words, and they, and they, came, and, and they had four words which they could choose from for the word love. The first one is storge, and it is an affection, especially in families. So, uh, so with children to their parents and parents to their children, or just you know the affection that is within a family unit, that is storge. That's the kind of love that they have. And then there is philia, which is a friendship love, or is translated in the New Testament, brotherly love. And then there is eros. Eros is a love between the sexes or the idea of being in love. That's what eros is. And this is what is popularly portrayed in our, uh, in our stories, in our magazines, on the TV. You know, these, this, it's this eros love, this passionate love, which is, you know, this, this being in love. This is, this is what the stories are made of and what is popularised in our media. A passionate love that desires another person for itself. That's what eros is. And then there is agape, which is a charity or a self-giving love. It's a love which comes out of yourself towards another person. So those are the four, not four, four words that the New Testament writers could draw from. Storge and Eros do not appear in the New Testament. You won't find them. They didn't choose to use those words to express what love was in the New Testament at all. 
And if we look in outside the Bible, right, to all the other Greek uh, manuscripts that are, are still available and the stories in classical Greek, in fact, you'll find the word that is most commonly used by far, by far the most common word used is philia and its associated words. That brotherly love, that brotherly affection, that is the word that is used more than anything else in Greek literature. It refers to a warm and affectionate regard between friends. You know, as Aussies, we would equate mateship with this kind of love, mateship. It also speaks about the companionship and the cherishing between a husband and a wife. So that companionship, you know, that, that exists between them, that, that, you know, you're my bestie. You know, that kind of love and companionship, that's what this kind of love is. It can also mean physical love too. Yet philia only appears a few times in the New Testament. New Testament writers did not choose this as their predominant form of what love actually is. So it didn't really have a great impact on New Testament thinking at all. It is never used of God's love for us, and it is never used of our love for God. So what are we left with? All the popular ones that we kind of think that love is, that our culture tells us it is, we actually can't use those. So what is love? What is biblical love? Agape has a range of meanings. It means to prefer or to set one aim or good above another, to esteem one person more highly than another. So here with agape, we have this this idea, if we put it into contemporary terms, is the things that we love, we elevate them. So I would take something from the bottom shelf, I would elevate it, and I would put it on the top shelf. And that's what I would be doing if I agaped something. I would be taking it, I would elevate it, and put it higher than something else. And we find that God actually does this with Abraham. Remember God told Abraham that he needed to come out from the land that he was living and go to a new place and that he was going to establish his covenant with Abraham and he was going to set him as the father of nations and through him all the world would be blessed. God agaped Abraham. He took Abraham out from there and he elevated him to here. And from him come the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel was supposed to have been the top nation in the world through whom all the world would be blessed. And God would bless them all through Israel. That is a, an expression of agape. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4, Paul says, for we know, brothers, loved by God. That word love is agapeo, that he has chosen you. God, in his love, has chosen you, agape. God's choosing and God's election, which is what Paul is talking about here, isn't based on your merit. It's not based on the fact that you've been a good boy or a good girl. It's not based on the fact that Jesus loves you more than he loves the person sitting next to you. It isn't based upon the fact that you're better looking than anyone else or anything else like that at all. It's purely and simply based on the fact that God chose you and has given you a position higher than you had before. 
It's all about his choosing. It's all actually about his love and nothing about you. Some people discount themselves because they think, I'm not good enough. You being good enough has got nothing to do with God's love. God loves you regardless of no matter where you are found on the shelf. Another facet of agape is seen in the self-sacrificial life of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, so that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty could become rich. That is Paul trying to put into words what agape love means. Jesus was rich. You know, Jesus had the status. Jesus was God. And yet he made himself poor on your behalf so that you might have his riches. That's agape. That is our example of what love is and how love works. Likewise, in Philippians 2 and verses 5 to 8, Paul again says, in your relationships with one another, he's talking about the people in the church, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Mindset in, in, other, um, in other translations talk about an attitude. So it's an attitude, a mindset, a way of thinking. The way of doing ethics. Have this mindset, the same as Jesus Christ, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. In other words, Jesus never elevated himself above anybody else. You'll never find Jesus scratching and clawing for status. Jesus never did that. He had the status. He had everything. He was God. But he gave all that up. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's our Jesus. That's love. That's what love means. This mindset, this way of thinking, as the NIV puts it, is the mindset of agape. And even though we, as Christians, have an elevated position, which we have, you know, the word tells us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. It doesn't get much higher than that. We have an elevated status, nonetheless. Even though we have an elevated status, and some are even called to be fivefold ministers and to give their lives for the gospel. We do not consider ourselves more privileged than those who are outside the church and we don't go scratching and clawing for status or, or bragging rights or anything else like that because that is not the example that Jesus showed us. Therefore, Christian leadership is about function, not status. We are not about grabbing for status nor climbing over the backs of other people as they do in the world in order to climb higher or climb a corporate or church ladder. That is, that, is, that is totally the opposite 
of everything that Jesus modeled and demonstrated for you and for me. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13, it's one of the few times I actually like the King James Version's rendering. Now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. Why did the people of the New King James, or not the New King James, the Old King James, the authorized version, why do they use the word charity? Again, language has meaning for cultures. And when the writers of the English version, as it was back then, were looking around for words that equated to what they saw in Scripture and what they saw of the life of Jesus, and they were grasping for what what kind of word can we use for this, they came across the word charity. Now, what's charity? A couple of coppers, you know, and I chuck it in the poor box. Charity means something different to you and me, which is why now modern translations render this love. But charity probably has a better understanding of what agape love is than our current modern understanding of what love is. Because charity is giving of self. As Ross already spoke about, the Lord's Prayer is all about giving. Charity is about giving of yourself and not expecting anything in return. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So faith, hope, and charity, agape. Rather than faith, hope, and goosebumps. Tithes and offerings are an expression of agape. If you give and expect to get something back, it is no longer agape. It's a business transaction. So when you give, thinking, well, that's it, I'm going to give because God's going to give it to me back, that's a business transaction. You know, we all do that. You know, I, I give over my dollars, I get a loaf of bread. I get something back. That's not agape. That's not charity. Charity gives self, gives of self and expects nothing in return. In fact, it gives for the betterment of others regardless of the cost to self. Regardless of how impoverished it might make me. Remember, Christ gave up his riches and became poor so that we who were poor could have his riches. That's agape. That's charity. So charity is about giving regardless of how poor it makes us. Why? Because we're looking for the enrichment and the betterment of others, not ourself. So at this point, I think that it would be good to maybe juxtapose or compare eros, which is our contemporary understanding with agape and have a look at how how the two differ. Eros is a general love that seeks its own desire to be gratified. The object of its desire can be almost anything. You know, we can love P 
people. We can love things. We can love our cars, can't we? We can, we can love a lot of things and we expect that love to be returned. We expect to get some kind of gratification for that passion that we have, the object of our desire. And love is fickle because as soon as that passion is extinguished, we move on to the next one, right? Agape, on the other hand, is more discerning and it's exclusive. It's exclusive. It chooses the object of its love and it remains loyal to it. So it doesn't matter whether, you know, when we, when we stand at the altar, when we're getting married, we say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's an expression of agape. Because we don't just love because our love's being returned. Because inevitably in any marriage, there's going to come a situation where perhaps that love can't be returned. Perhaps somebody gets sick. Perhaps we end up not being as rich as we used to be. All right? And we, you know, we, we end up in poverty. And so now, you know, you can't satisfy me with gifts and all the lavishness that you used to. You know, so, so love is, is, agape is loyal and stays loyal regardless. So it fixes its attention on the object and stays there. It doesn't float from one thing to the next. It's not fickle. It's not fickle. Eros, in its highest sense, can be used for the desire and the hunger for God. Agape is also a love for God, but it expresses itself in a very different way. It expresses itself in giving worship and magnifying Jesus. So the hunger that I have for God, the passion that I have for God, I want that hunger satisfied. I expect that hunger to be satisfied, but I want that, and I go after that. But when I agape God, I give my worship. I give adoration. And it's about the object that I love and giving and magnifying the object that I love, not expecting that to be returned. Eros needs others to satisfy its hunger. Agape is an active love that gives for the betterment of others. One is selfish love. The other love is selfless and unconditional. So when we have a look at eros and we have a look at agape together, you know, we can see a better a comparison about what that's like. So in summarising this definition of love I want to read a a scripture I don't think we've got a powerpoint for this one Uh, but it comes from Philippians chapter 2 and just sums up a lot of these things that we've been speaking about Paul has been pouring himself out to the Philippian church to the Christians there and he's been he's been loving them and giving of himself and expending himself on their behalf so that they might know Christ and might know him better and in 2 Philippians 2, 1 to 3, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from agape, the giving, the self-giving, if there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, return it to me. Let it come back to me. 
by being of the same mind, having the same agape, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Here Paul is, is just encouraging the believers. And you see what he's doing. He's taking the example of Jesus. He's taking the life of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, the, 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 what was passed down from the disciples to the next disciples to the next disciples. And Paul is taking this and he's trying to put in words. What does this love mean? What is the kind of love ethic that we need to live by? And we'll find that right the way throughout Scripture. I don't think if Paul was here today that he would have too much of an issue with our fascination for eros, our fascination for this emotional, heated kind of love and passion and desire. I don't think so. Because the reality is, is that the, the Hellenistic life in those days was probably a lot more that way inclined than we are today. So I don't think he would have a problem with that per se. But I do think that Paul would have a problem when he looked at our society in general and saw that we have no sense of nobility left. We have no sense of understanding of what that self-sacrifice looks like. You know, we, 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 we talk about that and we elevate that and we celebrate that rightly with those who go to war and at Remembrance Days and things like that. Those who give their life in battles for yours and my freedom, that is agape. That is agape love. It is a self-sacrifice, the ultimate self-sacrifice. But what does that mean? What does that mean in everyday life? Because most of us aren't going to get the opportunity to give our lives on the battlefield. Instead, we run after all these things to satisfy our passions and satisfy our desires. And we live for the self and we live for the individual. And I think that's what Paul would have a problem with. Because we have lost the sense of nobility. We've lost that sense of, of the selfless giving for the betterment of others. Of becoming poor so that others might become rich. So we're going to move now from a definition of love <laughs> in the very short amount of time that we've got left. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to really summarise it's just going to be bullet points now because we don't have a huge amount of time left to actually come to the kernel of what a Christian ethic is. But it was important. It's important that we understand the law of love and understand what that actually means. So we needed to put this definition in place. So now we're going to have a look at some of these other areas. The final measure of human conduct is the nature of God himself. That ultimately is what we what we draw our ethics from, because they start with God. They start with his nature, with his character and who he is, and that flows out to all creation. And in fact, we see that God loves with a love not just for human beings. There is a special love that God has for us as human beings, but there is God expresses his love. As we read it in Matthew 6, you know, God loves the birds. God loves even the grass of the field, even the lilies God loves. That word love, you'll never guess what it is. Agape. God gives of himself so that even those things 
more would be better, that they can live and thrive and flourish. That is God's love for his whole creation. And so we see that God's love, it starts in the heart of God and his character and flows on down through creation. And God wants us to imitate him. He wants us to imitate his character. And so that a Christian ethic also has ramifications for environmental ethics and flows on for that too. So yes, God loves the greenies. And in fact, in some ways, those who are greenies probably display more the character of God than some of us Christians do. We're the ones called by his name that are called to show love to the whole world. So as we reflect the character of God, the world, to the world, is important for Christian ethics. It's an important part of what we are to do when we're formulating how we ought to live in this world. In Ephesians 5 and verse 1, Paul says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. The imitation of God, the imitation of Christ, is very important for what we do. And as we observe the life of Jesus in the gospel narratives, as we see and we read him from the stories, because we can't, you know, we've already found it's really difficult sometimes to narrow things down to the meaning of a word, because words change meaning. So we need to have a look at the story. We need to have a look at the narrative, and we begin to draw from what we understand from the life of Jesus primarily but from the rest of Scripture as well. And that drawing from Scripture, that drawing out of these principles from the life is the work of theology. That's what we do. That's why we study the Word, so that we can understand it. And what we find in life of Jesus is that Jesus tends to oppose legalism. He tends to oppose legalism and ethical absolutism. Jesus, you know, we don't find him applying the letter of the law when they brought out a woman to be stoned because she'd been caught in adultery, Jesus didn't pick up a stone. And he was the only one in the crowd who had the right to do so. So we see that, in fact, Jesus actually opposes that kind of absolutist ethic. But we do find him prioritizing the love of God and the love of one another, loving our neighbor. He emphasizes grace and redemption and liberation. And so we see all those things in the life of Jesus and that is what we should be imitating. So Christian ethics are drawn primarily from the stories and the narratives of the Bible, not absolute laws. Even so, even though that the Bible shows us that we live a law-free life, it doesn't mean that we are lawless and we can do anything that we want because we are still law-abiding people. So we observe the Old Testament laws that coincide with the principles that we find and we draw from Scripture. Now, where are my Old Testament students? One over there. Any more? Where's Maddie? We've got a few. There's another one over there. Okay, Old Testament students should know this answer. So I'm going to test you. All right? There are three parts of the law. What are the three parts of the law? So this is, this is now, this question is going to be addressing what stopped at the cross and what went through the cross. So what are the three parts of the law? Anyone game enough to shout them out? 
<laughs> In case anybody didn't hear that, I'll retell you now. The three parts of the law. There is the cultic law, there is the civil law, and there is the moral law. Those are the three categories. There you go, gold star to anyone who got that one right. All right, so uh, just sign up for Bible College. I'll be taking your name down later. All right, so there are three parts of the law. The cultic law, which was the sacrificial law, or the purity laws, dietary laws, the things which said what was clean and what was unclean. These are all part of the cultic law, cultic practice, sacrificing system, sacrificial system. That ended with Jesus. That stopped at the cross because Jesus fulfilled all of that. Remember Jesus, when he was washing the disciples' feet, he said, Peter, you don't have to me clean all of you because my word has already made you clean. So Jesus did away with ritual purity, ritual impurity. There was a religious purity which was there to expressly show the nature of God. When Jesus came, we could see the real thing. We didn't need a bunch of rules and regs to tell us how God was. We could see and observe Jesus. So the cultic law ended at the cross. We don't go sacrificing chickens anymore. (laughs) Then we have the civil law. The civil law is contextual and therefore doesn't apply. You see, I don't need to obey the Old Testament civil law anymore because it was a law which was put in place for for their particular brand of justice. All right, so I don't need, I don't have a flat roof on my building which I go out and dry things from so I don't need to build a parapet around it to stop people from falling off, which is in the Old Testament. However, we do have civil laws in this country and we have building codes which say that if I live on the 72nd floor and I don't build a balustrade or a balcony rail around my, you know, outside my bedroom window and somebody falls off, then I am culpable. So we're not lawless. If I break the civil rules of Australia, if I break the speed limit, I have to pay the fine because I'm a law-abiding citizen. So we obey the civil law, but we don't obey the civil law as it's encoded in the Old Testament. But we do obey the law. We are not lawless. So we obey civil laws. But they are contextual and are re-engineered for contemporary life. And then there is the moral law. The moral law stands in harmony in general, with the principles that we find in Scripture in the life and the teaching of Jesus. And so as we look at the Ten Commandments, for example, we find the moral law encoded in that. These are words of wisdom. And there is wisdom, then, that comes through the moral law. And that wisdom is outside of culture. And so we can reapply those things. So it's a good thing to be able to do that. So the moral law comes through, in general, The cultic law stops and the civil law gets reinterpreted for contemporary society. And that's how we can use the Word of God. Christian ethics is relational in its orientation, is concerned with the individual and with the whole community. It isn't an ethic of the individual. It is an ethic of the community and community life. And that is an important aspect of our Christian ethic. And finally... The leading of the Spirit 
is vital for Christian ethics. Paul's whole argument to the Jews in the Galatian correspondence was that the life of the believer would bring around the same ethical results apart from the letter of the law. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming our lives and living in our hearts which brings around conformity to the image of Christ, that brings around the righteous requirements of the law through the Spirit. That's why we get a new heart and not an old one. So we don't have to obey the rules and the regs and the laws, which is what the Jews' argument was. Because the same thing happens through the Spirit. The same results happen. So to summarise... The law of love needs to be grounded in a biblical understanding of agape. Christian choices need to be grounded in theological principles drawn from the nature of God and the whole of Scripture when rightly interpreted. This is why we need to study the Word. Christian ethics are brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit in reforming us to conform to the image of Christ through a discipling community. Character formation, vital, if we are to move in a motive ethic of love. We need to attend to the work of discipleship because as we do that, and as our lives are transformed, as we begin to take on more of the character of Christ himself, our decisions and our choices will become more and more ethical because we look more and more like him. I'm going to invite the band back now. While the band is just coming up, we're going to sing another song just to round off this evening. But while the band get themselves ready, now that we've had a look at the law of love, definition of agape, and we've had a look at broadly, very briefly, what a Christian ethic looks like, I want us to uh, visit again Don and Donna. Don and Donna, here they are. No offence, Don and Donna. We left them earlier on contemplating the rightness of having a sexual relationship. And I'm not going to tell you what the answer is. Instead, as you go out to dinner tonight and you sit at home, I want you to apply a Christian ethic to their situation. I want you to consider what is their situation? What is the uniqueness of the situation which they are coming up against? And I want you to consider what are the ethical conflicts? Because if there's no conflict, we don't have an ethical problem. What are the conflicts? What are the conflicts that are, that are causing them to make a decision one way or the other? What are the biblical and theological principles that we can apply? What would be the loving thing to do? How do we do that? And then think about the consequences. What might be the consequences for a sexual relationship or abstinence? Either way, whichever way they choose, what would the consequences be for them as individuals, for their families, for their church, and ultimately for their relationship with God? Because all these things come into play when we consider a Christian ethic. So I'll commend Don and Donna to you and their fate into your hands this evening. 
Stay tuned for another exciting podcast brought to you by Bayside Christian Church.